0: Hello, welcome to The Word Diet on the Pure Radio Network. My name is Eric Schonsberg. My goal with this show is to help people read and understand the amazing Word of God. The show is named for my book project, The Word Diet, which is reading a chapter a day for a year from the Bible to understand the Ark of the Scriptures. The Word Diet is good for a devotional, but ideally it's done in groups or at least with partners. That way you get better accountability and richer discussion. And it's fine for seasoned Bible readers, but really I'm aiming the project at novices and strugglers, those who have not yet gotten into the great Word of God. If this is you, I hope you'll grab a few friends and work your way through the Word diet. If this isn't you, I'll bet you have a few friends in that boat, so why don't you grab a few of them and work through the Word diet. More information is available about the book at thoroughlyequipped.org. For the radio show, we're in the book of Leviticus, a greatly underrated book. My goal with the show is the same as the book, to encourage you to read and help you understand the Bible. So please read along with us before, during, and after listening to the show. Last week, we covered Leviticus 8 through 10, which is the ordination and the climactic culminating presence of God in chapter 9, arguably the peak of the entire Old Testament and certainly the peak of the Pentateuch. But then, unfortunately, chapter 10 was the sin by Nadab and Abihu, And we'll talk about how that leads into what we're doing this week. The three weeks prior to that were the sacrifices and the rites for sin in terms of both the individuals and the implications for community and the tabernacle. All of those shows are available on podcast by Spotify, iTunes, and the like. Today's show, we're going to start into the next section of Leviticus and chapter 11 in particular talking about clean and unclean food. Or be with us as we open up your scriptures, maybe especially a book like Leviticus. Help us understand what you have for us in this text, what you want from us and for us in the days to come. We thank you for everything that you give us in the name of Jesus. Amen. Please pray for the Purity on Network, the station and the show. We'll be back in a minute. Welcome back to The Word Diet. We're in Leviticus 11 today, and so far in the book of Leviticus, we've covered chapters 1 through 7, which are the sacrifices and rituals for sin, the implications of that for individuals, community, and the purification of the tabernacle. That led to the ordination of the priests in chapters 8 and 9, and the climactic, culminating presence of God coming on the tabernacle at the end of chapter 9. But then, unfortunately, soon after, we have the sin of Nadab and Abihu, actually later that day, which jacks things up. So that sets the table for the next section in Leviticus. It leads naturally into chapters 11 through 15, which is more purification, laws, rites, sacrifices, and the like. But here from unclean to clean, and we'll have to talk about how that's different than chapters 1 through 7, and then chapter 16's Day of Atonement. As Michael Morales puts it, chapter 10 provides a crisis that will propel the drama of the next section. So, there's a couple of issues here. First, how to deal with Nadab and Abihu's sin. They are priests priests, They are leaders, and their sin has occurred in the holy place or maybe next to the most holy place. We're not exactly sure, and they're dead. And so the implications of this are concerned about the immense corpse pollution on the tabernacle. And so soon after God's presence had come down, what on earth do we do with this? What on heaven will be done with this? Maybe is another way to think about this. And still unresolved from earlier, is what to do with intentional sins. We talked about non-intentional sins in the sacrifices of chapter 1 through 7, but it's been unstated, unasked, unanswered what to do with intentional sins. And all of this is going to point forward to the Day of Atonement. In moving to chapters 11 through 15, we're rotating from concerns about sin per se to, to another category of being unclean, and that's natural or bodily uncleanliness from a ritual ceremonial perspective. And as such, chapter 10 is a narrative pivot which allows the revelation of five more laws with respect to clean and unclean in chapters 11 through 15. Remember we had five laws revealed about sacrifice in chapters 1 through 7. And so, in a sense, as I mentioned before, these are the Ten Commandments of Leviticus, the five in chapters 1 through 7 to deal with sin, and now the five to deal with clean and unclean in chapters 11 through 15. Another broad point to make here is that all of this is in contrast to just doing things as Israel sees fit to do. Everything is going to be prescribed. The way that you approach God is prescribed tightly by God. John eight twelve. 12, the Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That's not up to us. That's up to God. And in the Old Testament, it's the same thing. The way to approach God is going to be prescribed in a very precise manner. Now, in talking about clean and unclean, we need to talk about and revisit and extend some of our earlier comments in the introduction about what that means and how does it play with the concepts of holy and common. And Morales is helpful here. He describes holy in contrast to common as a matter of status, and clean versus unclean, or pure versus impure, same word in the Hebrew, different translation of the English, as a matter of condition. So he says, quote, clean means to be fit for the presence of God, while to be holy means that one belongs to God. So again, holiness is a status, cleanliness is a condition. Now you can kind of combine these into a spectrum of sorts. From one end to the other, you would go unclean, clean, then holy, most holy, and then Yahweh himself. So the terms are separate, we need to keep them separate, but they do relate to each other as well. In particular, to be in the presence of the holy God requires one to be clean and pure. We saw an early example of this in exodus 25 where the altar was overlaid with pure gold same word that's used here in other words the unclean or the impure is not allowed to contact the holy this goes all the way back to genesis 3 when adam and eve sin they're not allowed to remain in god's presence anymore they're banished from the garden of eden being unclean in contact with the holy risks immediate death for the individual But in aggregate, it threatened God's presence among them, as Morales puts it, the loss of its highest blessing and reason for existence. Now, The good news is that you could be pronounced whole, clean, or pure with rituals for natural uncleanness. That's what chapters 11 through 15 is about or a perfect sacrifice from being sinfully unclean. That was chapters one through seven. I think Gordon Wynnum is helpful here, and this is a quote that I read in the introduction to Leviticus a few weeks ago. He says, cleanness is the natural state of most creatures. Holiness is a state of grace to which men are called by God, and it is attained through obeying the law and carrying out rituals such as sacrifice. Uncleanness is a substandard condition to which men descend through bodily processes and sin. Those two categories, again, are important. And uncleanness was quite incompatible with the holiness of the covenant people and with God. I think Morales is also helpful here when he says that God's purposes and activity are to clean and to sanctify, to provide paths and ways of life, whereas Satan's purposes and activity are to profane, to make common, and to pollute paths and ways that lead to death. In Leviticus, spiritual holiness is symbolized by approaching ideals in moral and physical perfection. Sacrificial animals and rites, atoning for sin, that was chapters 1 through 7, and now ritually clean people, chapters 11 through 15, and in all of this, undefiled, undeformed, and righteous priests. So when we look at the rituals for uncleanness here in chapters 11 through 15, the earlier focus in chapters 1 through 7 was on atonement, purification offerings for sins, particularly in chapters 4 and 5. Confession, repentance, restitution, sacrifice were the mechanisms by which Forgiveness was offered, cleanliness was reestablished. Isaiah one, sixteen and eighteen, wash and make yourselves clean, take your evil deeds out of my sight, stop doing wrong, learn to do right, seek justice, defend the oppressed, take up the cause of the fatherless, plead the case of the widow. Come now, let us settle the matter, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow, though they are red as crimson, they shall be like wool. So in that passage, Isaiah is talking about a moral uncleanness that comes from sin. Or think about the famous verse in Isaiah 6:5 Woe to me, the prophet says, I am ruined, I'm a man of unclean lips, I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. And again, he's speaking of sinful lips and all that that represents. Or think about Ezekiel 36, 25 through 28, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart, put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone, give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my law. Then you will live in the land I gave your ancestors. You will be my people and I will be your God. That's one of the great passages that prophesies the new covenant. But again, this idea of cleanliness, particularly from moral impurity, is what the prophets are speaking of there. But in chapters 11 through 15 in Leviticus, we've come to a different category. Morales says it's not because such contact of of uncleanness is in itself a sin, but because death and mortality are the result of sin. And so in general, the core of Leviticus is that there's a sacred bubble, which has been set within a sea of uncleanness. How now may any Israelite When even his lungs are polluted, enter this sphere. And how may this sphere be kept continually clean enough? And again, this is both with respect to moral sin and physical imperfection. The things that make one unclean range from crass disobedience to sins of omission, accidental sins, but now we're into bodily functions and malfunctions and natural, even commendable acts that are not necessarily sin. And so we have to make sure we're clear on that distinction. So there are various practical reasons for these regulations as well. For example, some of these correlate with hygiene. And we'll talk about that a bit, but often this is overemphasized as an explanation. We could also say that these regulations will help to ensure decent and orderly worship. And that, of course, is important to God as well. In some cases, it seems like there's a goal here to be distinct from pagan religion and culture. Deuteronomy 23 verses 12 through 14 talks about this in another realm. Designate a place outside the camp where you can go to relieve yourself as part of your equipment, have something to dig with, and when you relieve yourself, dig a hole and cover up your excrement. For the Lord your God moves about in your camp to protect you and to deliver your enemies to you, your camp must be holy so that he will not see among you anything indecent and turn away from you. So think what, what this command means, right? It means that other cultures apparently were doing this and thus it needed to be dealt with. And certainly there's a hygienic angle to this regulation as well. Broadly speaking, these regulations are underlining that we live in a fallen world. And what are the implications for that and holiness? We also see here that good intentions are not enough. We saw this earlier with sacrifice for unintentional sin, but just because you intend well doesn't mean that's sufficient for the holiness of God. And then finally, all of this would affect the everyday life of the people, which would promote constant and periodic focus on God and his standards. The Life Application Bible draws an application to this, saying similarly, we cannot live any way we want during the week and then rush into God's presence on Sunday. This approach indicates something more careful rather than casual in our worship of God. And that takes me to the punchline, which we'll come back to a number of times, but the most important reason turns out to be that all of this serves as a type and a signal and a picture of the importance of being and simulating purity and holiness when dealing with relating to a holy God. That is the number one answer. We'll keep coming back to that. All right, let's take a break here. Please consider becoming a P3 partner at Pureradio.org to pray, provide, and promote the work of this ministry. Please spread the word about Pureradio, this station, and this show. Welcome back to The Word Diet. We're in Leviticus 11 today. In the first segment, I did an introduction to chapters 11 through 15, or perhaps 11 through 16, depending on where you put the Day of Atonement. I want to start with a brief introduction to chapter 11, and then we'll dig into the text. So three points to make here. First of all, that we're covering eating in chapter 11. That's the first topic. And then chapters 12 through 15 are bodily problems that range from more to less severe. That'll be our topic next week. Now, eating, of course, is an everyday matter. It's also universal and unavoidable. In this, it reminds me of money and relationships. They're not things that you can go cold turkey on. You have to deal with food, money, and relationships. And so the temptations that go with those are also more insidious. We can't just walk away from them. It's also noteworthy that the trouble with eating is less severe than what we'll see next week in chapters 12 through 15. Aside from eating, the only problem is contact with a carcass, which represents death, of course, that makes one unclean, but it's cleared up easily and quickly, a wash and a wait until evening. And as we'll talk about next week, the other problems usually require quite a bit more. In terms of the structure of this passage, it's something that gives me more faith, just seeing how the scriptures are put together, the intricacy and the beauty of them. The structure of this chapter has six sections, each starting with this and these, and there are two sets of three, animal categories, and then the pollution and treatment. Again, as we talked about with Leviticus, triads are a common part of the structure here. And then finally, it's worth noting Genesis 7 verses 2 and 3 when Noah's getting on the ark, he had seven clean animals and two unclean, and then seven pairs of birds. And so it's not really described there, it's just stated. So we're not sure exactly what's going on here in Leviticus. It could be codifying already existing practices or revisiting practices from the time of Noah. We're not sure exactly uh, if this stuff is completely original or if it's referring back to something older. And traditional within Judaism. So let's read Leviticus eleven, verses one through eight. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Say to the Israelites, Of all the animals that live on land, these are the ones you may eat. You may eat any animal that has a divided hoof and that chews the cud. There are some that only chew the cud and or only have a divided hoof, but you must not eat them. The camel, though it chews the cud, does not have a divided hoof. It is ceremonially unclean for you. The hyrax, though it chews the cud, does not have a divided hoof. It is unclean for you. The rabbit, though it chews the cud, does not have a divided hoof. It is unclean for you. And the pig, though it has a divided hoof, does not chew the cud. It is unclean for you. You must not eat their meat or touch their carcasses. They're unclean for you. So let's hit some highlights here and summarize. It opens with to Moses and Aaron. And this is relatively rare, but it is something we see quite a bit in this section, which makes sense. We're after the anointing of the priest, and this is a particular province of the priest, and so we'll see this phrasing three times in chapters 11 through 15. The allowance here, what they're allowed to eat, is any animal that has a split hoof completely divided and that chews the cud. Milgram notes that the sacrificial quadrupeds, four-legged, are taken for granted. Here we're dealing with non-sacrificial animals. We'll see the same thing happen. We talk briefly in passing about birds in verses 13 through 19. You see a further extension of this list in Deuteronomy 14 verses 4 and 5. There it lists three domestic sacrificial animals and seven wild or game animals that are mostly unidentifiable for modern readers. Or maybe some other animals that are not yet in play for Israel until they get to the promised land and as time passes. Verses 4 through 7 then gives an example of some either ors which are forbidden. The camel in verse 4, uh, an animal we don't quite know what it is. Depending on your translation, it may say coney or rock badger in addition to hyrax, which is what the NIV has. Verse 6, the rabbit, we know what that is. And verse 7 is The pig. Now, in verse six, rabbits don't actually chew the cud, but it sure looks like they do. And that may be the case in verse five as well. Milgram notes that the pig has hooves, but it is not a ruminant. Therefore, the ruminant cud chewing criterion is meant specifically to eliminate it. And we'll come back to why That's important. And then the punchline in verse 8, these things are unclean, or as Deuteronomy 14.3 puts it, detestable. So why these animals? Well, one answer is not really satisfying. It could be that it's all arbitrary. God's just kind of making some stuff up here. And there is a theological angle to this answer that the laws sometimes seem strange to us. We don't have applications. We don't have understanding why God does what he does. But then again, our election and Israel's election are also equally strange. So if you're not happy with any of the explanations I've got and want to go with arbitrary, there is that theological justification. God does what he wants to do. But I think we have some better answers to roll through here. One is that it's perhaps connected to pagan worship, but this is a far from consistent thing. For example, bulls have a prominent piece in Israelite worship and it did in pagan worship as well. Now, the most notable example here would maybe be pigs. Again, there was a special criterion meant to eliminate it. It was a practice of the Hittites, Greeks, and especially the Philistines, who are, of course, a problem throughout Israel's history. The references against pigs are direct and indirect. Indirect reference, Proverbs 11.22, like a gold ring in a pig's snout is a beautiful woman who shows no discretion. And then a more direct criticism of pigs. Isaiah sixty six seventeen. those who consecrate and purify themselves to go into the gardens following one who is among those who eat the flesh of pigs, rats, and other unclean things. They will meet their end together with the one they follow, declares the Lord. We might be able to tell some hygienic stories here. Matthew Henry describes this with an analogy to a loving father who restrains his children from eating that which he knows will make them sick. And this is a very popular view, especially for modern scientific quote-unquote readers, But the fact is here as well, this is far from consistent to be a primary explanation. It's not addressed in the Old Testament. It's incoherent with Jesus's purposes in this area when the hygiene had not changed that much. And so this is ultimately a secondary consideration at most. Maybe it connects to taboo, social taboos, but what's the cause and the effect of such laws? We think about the same sort of thing in Acts 15. And again, this may be part of the story, but it can't possibly be A major explanation. We could also try to read it only or at least highly symbolically. For example, uh, some creative imaginative folks have talked about the analogy of cud-chewing to meditation. Acts of justice and charity are the hoof, and you've got to have both, not just one. And, you know, points for creativity, but again, this can only be partial at best, and it smacks of eisegesis at worst that you're reading your own interpretations into the scripture. The strongest theories by far are two. The first is ritual purification, especially given the context we've seen in Leviticus so far, and the second are ethical considerations, and I'll take those in order. So, as before, we know that the importance of purification and holiness with respect to the tabernacle and God's presence is a top consideration. How do we relate to a holy God and stay in a clean community if you're Israel? Morales says here, just as God had separated Israel from among the people, so Israel was to distinguish between clean and unclean animals in relation to eating, every meal served as a reminder of God's election of Israel out of the nations, but also of Israel's call to keep themselves separate from the uncleanness of those nations to be a holy people. And as such, this became a key part of Jewish identity and calling. It's part of the wall of separation and hostility that Paul talks about with the Gentiles For the short run, you can see where this would be mostly a good thing, but for the long run, and God's purposes with the Gentiles in the ministry of Jesus and beyond, such things have to be abolished. When we think of calling Israel out, we start with the priest as holy, Israel is clean, and the Gentiles would be unclean. Or we might think of the priests, which were chosen out of Israel, which was chosen out of the world. Holiness, as we'll talk about at the end of Leviticus 11, is a crucial theme here. Five times the word is mentioned. So clearly, holiness is meant to be a key part of this explanation. Winnem says their diet was limited to certain meats in imitation of their God, who had restricted his choice among the nations to Israel. Or think about the parallels with the animals themselves sacrificial animals are for the tabernacle, clean animals could be within the camp, but unclean animals were to be in the wilderness. But still, we haven't really answered why these animals. Well, for one thing, it's the same animals as were sacrificial. Milgram says, only these three stipulated quadrupeds are eligible for the human table because they are eligible for God's altar and table. The dining table symbolically becomes an altar, and all the diners are symbolically priests. The second possibility here is to see these animals as holy and clean because they are whole or normal, right? Remember that defects are not allowed in the sacrifices or the priest. And in the allowable animals, these are all avoiding what we might call mixed kinds. And this would be a reference to the order that God wants in worship rather than chaos. So what do I mean here? Well, animals walk on land, Fishes swim in the water and birds fly in the air. Anything that's contrary to that order is going to be rejected for eating. Winham says each sphere has a particular mode of motion. The clean animals are those that conform to these standard pure types. Those creatures which in some way transgress the boundaries are unclean. Fish without fins and scales. Insects which fly but which have many legs. Animals with indeterminate form of motion. And all those are things we'll see later in Leviticus 11. And this explanation works really well, except for pigs, which seem to be a special case, connected to sacrifice, and improper birds, which we'll talk about a little bit later. The second explanation I think has primary weight are ethical considerations. As I mentioned in the introduction here, we have an evolution from the pagan penchant for human sacrifice and moving to animal sacrifice, so that's important. It also promotes a focus on God and his ways, a form of spiritual discipline. It's also a reminder that cheap grace and anything goes in worship is not appropriate. Winham says one might say that as God has limited his diet to these animals, so must his people. It is man's duty to imitate his creator. When the Israelite restricted his food to God's chosen animals, he recalled that he owed all his spiritual privileges to divine election. Or think about a passage like Isaiah 65, verses 1 through 7, which is harping on idolatry, offering incense and animal sacrifices wherever they want. They're not calling on God, disobedience, and injustice, and unrighteousness. And in that passage, it talks about sitting in the graves and offering pigs as sacrifices. All of this is unacceptable, and all of it is connected. Those sacrifices are connected to the injustice and unrighteousness that God is critiquing in Isaiah 65. Another ethical angle comes from Jacob Milgram, who talks about ethical eating and slaughter in a post-Genesis 9 world. Remember that Genesis 1, 28 through 30, man is given rule and dominion, but is told, along with the animals, to stick to plants in terms of diet. After the flood, that changes with Genesis 9, verses 3 and 4. Everything that lives and moves about will be food for you. Just as I gave you the green plants, I now give you everything But you must not eat meat that has its lifeblood still in it. Milgram describes this as as a concession so humans may satiate their lust for animal flesh yet not be dehumanized in the process. Again, in broadest terms, this points to living purposefully and thoughtfully. You can't just kill whatever you want and eat whatever you want. You have to live with purpose and thought. This limits the animals that are available for Israel to eat. The chosen method, a slit throat, would result in immediate unconsciousness and render death as painless as possible. Remember that all of this meat would be eaten through sacrifice at the altar in the courtyard. The killing would be done by local priests who have both skill and and piety. Now this would later be changed when the Judean kings would decentralize it, allowing the laity to slaughter. But even so, the Bible would still call those people to act like a priest, blessing and dedicating the meat and the animal and the meal to God. As Milgram puts it, we have a right to nourishment, not the life of others. We have no right to put an animal to death except by God's sanction. It's a matter of grace that we can eat the meat of an animal and the blood must be drained and returned to God. If Milgram's right that this is a concession by God, that doesn't mean God is excited about us killing animals. In fact, it might be just a concession that he's not all that excited about it. Genesis 9-1 talks about dominion, but how do we eat in Genesis 9-3 while practicing a careful, godly dominion? And so it's a long conversation, but the idea of animal rights is not because they're equal in a biblical worldview, but precisely because they are unequal and vulnerable. And that's why we have to treat animals relatively well. All right, let's take our second break here. If you're on Facebook, like Pure Radio and friend me there. Podcasts of previous episodes are available on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Google Podcasts. Questions and comments are always welcome on my Facebook. Welcome back to The Word Diet. We're in Leviticus 11 today. In the first segment, I covered chapters 11 through 15 in terms of an introduction. In the second segment, I did an overview of chapter 11, and we covered verses 1 through 8 in particular. Now we're going to cruise through most of the rest of the chapter in this segment and make some other comments. So starting in verses 9 through 12, we move from land animals to water animals, but in particular, those that don't have fins and scales. So this is out of order, right? as we talked about in the last segment. If they have fins and scales, fine. If they don't, then that's not in order. That's a picture of chaos. Those are unclean. One little thing to say here about translations, there are two Hebrew terms in play here, and depending on the translation, it may not be very helpful, but it goes back and forth between impure and abomination or detestable. Verses 13 through 19, you have a list of birds, and the ones that are knocked out here are birds of prey, carrion eaters, and loner birds. A bat is not a bird, so don't take that too seriously. Uh, All of these are terrible symbolism, right? You're either attacking your kind, birds attacking birds, and drinking blood on top of that, or you're eating dead and rotten flesh, or there's no community, and none of those fit with biblical ideals. In God's economy, the importance of treating blood and life appropriately, predators, those that are torn by wild animals, or animals that died naturally and are found dead are both prohibited, and that's chapter 17, verse 15. Verses 20 through 23 in this chapter talks about flying insects that walk. Again, you're crossing kinds there, but if they fly and hop, that's okay. And then 21 also allows for those that have jointed legs for hopping on the ground, which is appropriate for that kind of creature the katydid, the cricket, the grasshopper, and the locust. Of course, John the Baptist famous for eating those. Insects are specified here as having only four legs. Is that all it's talking about? Or are we just not to take this all that seriously? Is it not counting the jumping legs? We're not quite sure. Again, as with the swarm that's mentioned in Deuteronomy 1420, if they don't have a clear-cut motion, if they're crossing kinds, then that's what makes them unclean. And then finally, verses 29 through 31 and 41 through 44, we have the amphibians, any creature that moves about on the ground, whether on its belly or walks on all fours or on many feet. Verses 29 and 30 gives a list of some of these, including lizards. Wynnum says these are those that dart hither and thither in an unpredictable fashion. Again, a picture of chaos rather than order. This also adds to the list of difficult to discern kind or crossing kinds, as Wenham puts it, Swarming things are neither fish, flesh, nor fowl. Eels and worms inhabit water, but not as fish. Reptiles go on dry land, though not as quadrupeds. Some insects fly, though not as birds. Again, crossing kinds and that level of disorder is not consistent with God's holiness. Now, why are the amphibians repeated in this chapter, in this passage? Winnem argues it's just an easy example to close out the chapter. Milgram sees a connection here to earth, which represents death and the underworld, and to dust, which represents the grave and death. And so he sees these as particularly grievous examples to be avoided. Now, verse 8 gives us one of the punchlines of this chapter, as I read before, that these things are unclean. You must not eat or touch their carcasses. But remember, this is not sin unless we're talking about priests touching a carcass. That's prohibited in chapter 22, verses 8 and 9. Or coming into contact with holy things after this. That's prohibited. Or not dealing with the uncleanness promptly enough. That's mentioned in chapter 5, verse 2. Notice that it's eating and touching. That are denoted. And we can draw easy application to us here, indulging in and flirting with sin. In fact, a famous verse in the Bible has its roots in Leviticus, 2 Corinthians 6.14, do not be yoked together with unbelievers for what do righteousness and wickedness have in common or what fellowship can light have with darkness. Range down to verse 17, Paul is quoting verses out of the Old Testament, including Leviticus, come out from them and be separate, says the Lord, touch no unclean thing, and I will receive you. Now if you did touch a carcass, that's okay, just have to deal with the rituals properly from there. Verses twenty four through thirty-one, you're unclean till evening and you gotta wash your clothes. Winham notes that only dead animals pollute. All dead animals are unclean unless they've been slaughtered through ritual. Clean animals are unclean if they die naturally. That's in verses thirty nine and forty. But in all these cases, the unclean is temporary, it's purified by washing, and it only lasts until evening, so relatively minor. On the lasting until evening part of this, Matthew Henry observes that we must learn by daily renewing our repentance every night for the sins of the day to cleanse ourselves from the pollution we contract by them that we may not lie down in our uncleanness. Verses 39 and 40 indicate that even the eating is not that big deal. Again, it's not about sin, the same rituals are prescribed here. Leviticus 17 verses 15 and 16 says anyone, whether native-born or foreigner, who eats anything found dead or torn by wild animals must wash their clothes and bathe with water. They will be ceremonially unclean till evening, then they will be clean. But if they do not wash their clothes and bathe themselves, they will be held Responsible. Again, it's not the eating per se that's the big deal. It's that eating translates to ritual uncleanness which threatens the tabernacle and is inappropriate for a holy God. The text also deals with incidental contact, verses 32 through 38, when the carcasses come in contact with objects. This revisits a brief passage in chapter 6, verses 27 through 28, where there'd be incidental contact of the holy with clothing. That's fine and caring for cooking vessels, which was a problem, but it could be remedied. Here in verse 32, if it falls on something, it's unclean, but you just put it in water, it's unclean till evening, and then it's going to be clean. 33 through 35 talks about falling into a cooking pot or oven, but that must be broken up, and verse 34 says anything in it is unclean. So implements are destroyed. Cisterns, which were a bigger deal, are left okay and to be cleansed. There's probably an economic problem piece of this. Likewise, food is destroyed, but clothing and tools, no, you, you let that go. Probably an economic motivation for that as well. There's also a distinction in this passage between dry and wet seed. And the idea, I guess, in terms of the biology would be that water allows the impurity to penetrate, kind of reminds me of the five-second rule, and wet seed would be used for cooking and brewing. Rather than planting. If it's dry seed for planting, not a big deal. If it's for cooking and brewing, that's viewed as unclean. It's interesting in all of this, if we think a bit broadly, that holiness and uncleanness are contagious. And I think this is a good reflection for us that so we think, I think, too little about sin as contagion, that our holiness can be more contagious than we imagine, and our uncleanness can be more contagious than we imagine. So this calls us to be more careful with this in broad symbolic terms. Now let's read the end of Leviticus 11, 43 through 47. Do not defile yourselves by any of these creatures. Do not make yourself unclean by means of them or be made unclean by them. I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves and be holy because I am holy. Do not make yourselves unclean by any creature that moves along the ground. I am the Lord who brought you up out of Egypt to be your God. Therefore, be holy because I am holy. These are the regulations concerning animals, birds, every living thing that moves about in the water, and every creature that moves along the ground. You must distinguish between the unclean and the clean, between living creatures that may be eaten and those that may not be eaten. A number of small things and then a couple of big points to close this out. Verse 44, did you catch that second reference to amphibians? Again, you can kind of see why that's interesting. Why do amphibians get such... Uh, attention. Verse 43, do not defile yourselves. Verse 43 also has an active and a passive reference that you make yourselves or you are made unclean. So, it seems to be when you do something or when something incidentally touches you, for example. Verse 44, I'm the Lord your God. It's almost as if he's saying, that's enough. That is sufficient to motivate why you shouldn't do these things. Consecrate yourselves. Again, this flavor of I said so, but it is motivated by verses 44 and 45, be holy because I am holy. And this is in various forms throughout Leviticus. We talked about how this is such a key theme, but it is concentrated here. They were to separate themselves from common pagan religious practices and from the cultures. They were not to compromise and become corrupt. Matthew Henry says a close and constant adherence to God's ordinances is the most effectual preservative from the infection of gross sin. And of course, for us, there's a tension in being in, but not of the world. And Israel is also dealing with this as well. For us, a classic verse here is Romans 12.1. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. And this is to be accepted by him and to pursue what is important to him. Notice also that this puts ethics and morality together with theology. 1 Peter 1, 15 and 16, Just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, Be holy because I am holy. And then verse 45, all this is based on God's gracious deliverance of them from Egyptian bondage. This is mentioned nine times in Leviticus and about 60 times in the Old Testament. Matthew Henry says, Having of late been so wonderfully dignified with distinguishing favors, he that had done more for them than for any other people might justly expect more from them. And in this chapter, it has to do with eating, as we see in the conclusion, verses 46 and 47. Last point to make here is it's fascinating, important to note that holiness is the motivating reason every time food is addressed in the scriptures, Leviticus 11, Leviticus 20, Exodus 22, 31, Deuteronomy 14.21. In Leviticus 11, five times we see words with holiness as the root. Milgram observes that few biblical laws are coupled with the demand for holiness. Of these, none has the demand with the same staccato emphasis and repetition as do the food prohibitions. The only other place we see this is the priesthood, seven times the word holy is used in chapter 21, verses 6 or 8, and idolatry. Leviticus 20, Deuteronomy 7, Deuteronomy 14. Again, the emphasis is tremendous on holiness in those three cases. So this is a huge deal for Israel. Let's take our last break here. Please consider becoming a P3 partner at Pureradio.org. Please spread the word about Pure Radio, this station, and this show. Welcome back to The Word Diet. We're in Leviticus 11 today, talking about the distinction between clean and unclean food under Jewish ritual law. And for this last segment, we're going to talk about how does this relate to the New Testament and its coverage of similar themes, and how does it relate to us today. The first thing to know here is that there is a pretty good distinction between ceremonial law, like what we're reading about here, and moral or civil law. And the categories are not as airtight as sometimes they're sold, but there is a useful distinction here. And this second set of categories, chapters 11 through 15, would fit under ceremonial law. There's some kind of ritual thing here that has to do particularly with the tabernacle, keeping it pure, clean, and where Israel is able to access a holy God. And so we've seen this distinction already in Leviticus, chapters 1 through 7, mostly dealing with moral sins. And here in chapters 11 through 15, something to do with uncleanness. And both of these are problematic in terms of approaching the tabernacle and defiling it and making God's presence less likely, more likely that he would leave the tabernacle. And so both of them have to be dealt with, but they are separate categories. And as we look to the New Testament, we know that the former are fulfilled through and superseded by Christ, whereas the latter, the moral and the civil law, are often enhanced in the New Testament. Hebrews 9 and 10, it says they are only a matter of food and drink and various ceremonial washings, external regulations, applying until the time of the new order. And that new order comes with Jesus and Pentecost. And so, the ceremonial things, the things we're reading about here, are useful as a type. They point to certain principles, but they have been dealt with through the ministry of Jesus. If we look at the ministry of Jesus in particular, there there are some interesting passages. Matthew 23, verses 25 and 26, Jesus ripping the Pharisees for all of that chapter says in those two verses, "'Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence.'" blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and dish, and then the outside will also be clean. And so this is a riff on cleanness and the difference between external cleanness, which is what uh, Leviticus talks about in the Old Testament system, versus the internal cleanness that Jesus is pointing to as far more important. Or consider John 4.9, his encounter with a Samaritan woman, Uh, And there it says, the Samaritan woman said to him, you are a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Another reference indirect to what would have been clean or unclean, right? The Gentiles were seen as unclean because they did not observe the holiness and cleanliness code of Leviticus. And so for Jesus to associate with a Samaritan woman, was noteworthy for that culture. And then there's Jesus messing with the Pharisees in Matthew 15, also in Mark 7. And the Pharisees are bothered that the tradition of the elders is being broken because they don't wash their hands before they eat. And first, Jesus messes with them for being selective in the traditions that they follow. That's in verses 3 through 6. He calls them out for hypocrisy. But then the big conclusion, I think, is in verses 17 through 20 Don't you see that whatever enters the mouth goes into the stomach and then out of the body? But the things that come out of a person's mouth come from the heart, and these defile them. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, slander. These are what defile a person, but eating with unwashed hands does not defile them. So you have a redefinition or a recasting of what is unclean from food and externals to the heart and internal. When we move to the early church, Acts 10 and 11 comes into play here. A great story, Peter, and what is often called his conversion in dealing with the Gentiles, Cornelius in particular. Great story if you're not familiar with it. Maybe the punchline is Acts 10 verse 15, where in the vision he's told, do not call anything impure that God has made clean. And in the vision, it's about animals, but really it's a figure for Uh, the Gentiles as a people, that the Gentiles are not impure, and they are going to have the gospel opened up to them through the ministry of Jesus, the Spirit, particularly the ministry of Paul. But it's important to God that Peter would get on board as well. And it's interesting that his conversion story, so to speak, is told three times in the book of Acts, and Paul's conversion story, the road to Damascus, is also told three times. So those are the heart of Acts. We often talk about Paul's conversion, but Peter's conversion, so to speak, is also really important in the early church. It also lines up with those triads that I've been talking about in Leviticus, these groups of three. And of course, the number three is important throughout Scripture, but it is interesting and fitting that the number three figures prominently in both Leviticus and in Acts with the conversions of Paul and Peter. So you might think that would solve everything, but there was the ongoing controversy in the New Testament church, especially since all of this was the most obvious mark of being a faithful Jew and a God follower. It occupied a central place in Jewish life and thought. And for us, we look at that and go, okay, what's the big deal? It's just food. Why can't you let it go? Well, it's centuries of saying this is crucial to who we are as a people and our identity. And remember in the last segment, we talked about how it was motivated by God's holiness. This is not just some rule. The only times that holiness is used to motivate behavior, it's in the priesthood idolatry, which is obviously a big deal, and the food. And so, unclean, clean food is a crucial issue for the Jews. And of course, then it follows it is difficult for them to give this up and thus a point of tension in the early church. Perhaps the most obvious example of this playing out is in Acts 15, and the Council of Jerusalem, again, a crucial, very interesting chapter, if you're not familiar with it. I'll just read verses 28 and 29, which is the resolution, where they say, It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us not to burden you with anything beyond the following requirements. You are to abstain from food sacrifice to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. You will do well to avoid these things. So, of all the ceremonial laws, these are ones that set Israel apart from the Gentiles, and some of them are held on to, some are not. The reference to blood holds here, but remember that the prohibition against blood is back to the time of Noah. It's pre-Israel, pre-Abraham, and so that's a universal principle, not a commandment to Israel in particular. Also on that list, you have a reference to idols, and then you have the meat of strangled animals. That's a law that was held from earlier, but again, it would have dealt with improperly draining the blood, and then sexual immorality. And there is some debate on this passage, why they decided on this list, but for our purposes here in Leviticus, all of these things connect back to Leviticus. You've either got sexual immorality, which fits into moral sin, You've got references to idolatry, which is universally condemned, and then you have the two references to blood and handling it improperly, which is a pre Genesis 12 Abraham reference, and so is a universal concept. But again, even Acts 15 doesn't solve the issue. So we see in the writing of Paul that he continues to wrestle with this in the context of what he calls the weaker brother. Romans 14 is one of those key passages, verse one, except the one whose faith is weak without quarreling over disputable matters. One person's faith allows them to eat anything, but another whose faith is weak eats only vegetables. So Paul defines the legalist, the one that's more conservative, as the weaker brother. But the stronger brother is to submit to the weaker brother as long as it's not seen as a matter of salvation or twisting the gospel in some way. Verse 13, make up your mind not to put any stumbling block or obstacle in the way of a brother or sister. Again, speaking particularly of the weaker brother or sister. Verse 14, I'm convinced, being fully persuaded in the Lord Jesus, that nothing is unclean in itself, but if anyone regards something as unclean, then for that person, it is unclean. If your brother or sister is distressed because of what you eat, you are no longer acting in love. Do not by your eating destroy someone for whom Christ died. Paul goes on to critique such views of the weaker brother when dogmatic as a matter of legalism. Colossians 2 verses 20 through 23, since you die with Christ, the elemental spiritual forces of this world, why as though you still belong to the world do you submit to its rules? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence finally although we might be tempted to just throw this whole thing away we are still called to be holy people so even if it doesn't refer to the food we eat it still refers to the broader principle first peter 2 9 you're a chosen people a royal priesthood a holy nation god's special possession that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light winham says it is easy to take for granted the grace that has been given the ancient food laws were designed to curb such forgetfulness And it's the same for us as well. We need to pursue purposeful, thoughtful living, not cheap grace, understanding what God's given us in terms of grace and being thankful for that. And as Matthew Henry puts it, if these were the standards for unclean food, how much more for unclean acts, thoughts, words, and motives? Let's be careful with the way we live. Let's pursue a holy God by living lives that are holy in themselves. Amen and amen. Good to be with you today. Podcasts of previous episodes are available on Spotify, iTunes, SoundCloud, and Google. Interact with me on Facebook, and we'll catch you next time on The Word Diet.